Well, hey, good morning. Y'all are so friendly. Those first hour people, I get up there and say good morning, and they just say, shut up, and get out of here, start throwing stuff at me. Y'all are the best, though. Hey, guys, we're in week uh, two of this series that we're calling Awakening, and I, I thought it would be good, a good idea from the beginning to kind of give you a specific instance of what we're actually talking about when we use terms like awakening and revival, like what does that look like when a great awakening happens? And so to do that, we're going to look at two Old Testament books, Second Kings and Second Chronicles, at the all-too-short life of King Josiah. In Second Kings 23, verses 25, it records uh, King Josiah's epitaph, kind of what may, may have been carved on his tombstone. And it says of him, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Now that's a lot of alls, right? I mean, don't you long for that to be true in your life? Like for your kids and others to look back on you, not to pat you on the back or make much of you, but to be able to say, my dad, my mom, my sister, my brother, my friend, like did what the Lord told them to do with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength. They lined up with God's Word. Like I long for that to be true in my life. Like I long, like I prayed that, that, that I would be as spiritual as the songs that we sing. And even as we sing them, we're declaring to God, God, this is what I want to be true of me. This is where I want my heart to be. Do you really want Jesus to have it all? And if you don't want that, do you desire to want that? Do you want to want that? Because if that, that's where you are, that's a good place to start. Just start there. Say, God, I'm not there. I don't know if I want this, but I certainly want to want it. Like, do you desperately long for a genuine spiritual awakening? Like, do you even see the need for it on a personal level or on a national level? Right? Like last week we saw in our sermon that God will, in His grace, bring us to a point of desperation. Like as a nation and individually, He will bring us in His grace to a point where we are crying out, God, send revival. He has done this a number of times in the history of our nation. In fact, the last one what has been, is what's been called the Jesus Revolution. I don't know how many of y'all have seen that movie. I mentioned it last week. I hope if you haven't seen it, that you will see it before the end of this sermon series. It's really so good. Uh, we watched it together as a small group uh, this week. And it tells the story of the last national awakening that we had in our country at the uh, end of the 60s, really from 68 to 72 with certain people like uh, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel and Lonnie Frisbee of the Vineyard and, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, Greg Laurie, uh, also of Calvary Chapel uh, and Harvest Fellowship. Like uh, the years like in this depicted in this movie are at a terrible time in our nation. The end of the 60s, our nation was rocked. They were at war. 
Uh, they were chasing after all kinds of empty thing, empty things and coming up more and more empty. And they finally came to that point of desperation and revival broke out on the scene. Now, years after the, the events in this film depicted, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie and Chuck Smith sat down together and Greg Laurie asked Chuck, do you think that we could have another Jesus revolution in our day? Like, could and would God do for us what he did for them back then? And so Pastor Chuck answered honestly. He said, I don't know. I don't know. Back in the 60s, people were desperate. Unsaved people were spiritually hungry. They were searching for God. I was desperate too, desperate to be part of what God was doing. So I guess the question for today is, are we desperate enough? What do you think? Are we desperate enough? Are you desperate enough? Are you just comfortable? You're happy that you're in church with other believers and everything's good as long as you stay in this room and the air conditioning's working, working for us, right? But here's the test of whether, <laughs> amen, whether you're desperate enough is this past week, did you spend any time praying for revival? That was the big takeaway from last week's message is if you were here, did you pray for revival last week? And how often did you pray for revival last week? And if you were to look at the time you spent in praying for revival in the last seven days, does that equate to desperation? Like were you desperately crying out for God to do something in your life, in our nation, in our church? Like I said at the end of that message, pray for revival until God either says yes or shut up. And so did you pray last week? And if you didn't pray, you're obviously not desperate. You're not taking God seriously. And if you say, well, no, I know I, I take God very seriously. Where's your evidence for that? Greg Laurie said, chaos and desperation are far more likely to lead to revival than comfort and complacency. God grants revival. He grants it to those who are humble enough to know that they need it. Those who have a certain desperate hunger for Him. You see, the truth is, guys, people don't seek God when everything is awesome. They got money in the bank and a good job and their kids are healthy. Everybody's happy. They're going on vacation. Not a lot of seeking desperately for God during those times. God brings us to that point, that point of distress and desperation so that we can cry out to Him. And I sincerely believe that we are at the door right now to either national revival or national judgment. One of those would be incredible grace and the other would be incredibly fair. Like we were at a point of desperation whether or not we recognize it. So what will it be? Remnant or revival? Will we be the ones who stay faithful to God even if revival doesn't come in desperate times? Or will God in His grace and mercy stir up His people and this nation once again 
You see, awakening is the sovereign and the generational work of God. Like God does it. He moves in generations of people and He does it sovereignly. And even though God is sovereign over revival and over awakening, He often uses something or someone as a catalyst. Let me show you what I mean. In Second Chronicles 34, it says that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So to give you an idea of the context of the Old Testament, if you're new to the Bible, like about 2,000 years ago, God called a man named Abram, then changed his name to Abraham, to follow him, right? And to confess that he is his God. And he made him a promise to make him a great nation. About 500 years later, so 1,500 years B.C., uh, he worked with a guy named Moses. And then in about 1000 BC, he worked with a guy named King David in the time of the united monarchy of Israel, where Saul, David, and Solomon were three kings in succession, each reigning for 40 years. And then in 931 BC, the kingdom split in two, north to south, with the northern kingdom under the rule of Jeroboam, taking the name of Israel and the southern kingdom under the name of under the rulership of Rehoboam taking the name of Judah the northern kingdom was wicked from the start it had 20 wicked kings and it lasted 209 years and then in 722 BC the Assyrians wiped them out took them into captivity the southern kingdom also had 20 kings Ten were righteous and ten were not. And so they lasted 345 years. But then in 605 B.C., uh, we studied this just a few months ago, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right, were taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, back up a little bit. 35 years before Daniel and his friends are taken to captivity, an eight-year-old boy becomes the king of Judah, and his name was Josiah. He's just eight years old. His father Amnon was a wicked king who only reigned for two years. He was so wicked that even the wicked people didn't like him, and so they assassinated him. Now Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh, who was also wicked, and he reigned for 55 years. And Josiah's great-grandfather, Hezekiah, was a righteous king who reigned for 29 years. And so there you have it, the last great spiritual awakening for the nation of Israel ended 57 years before Josiah was anointed as the king of Israel. And so in 640 BC, when he becomes the king, this is the kind of kingdom he inherits. Like they're spiritually absolutely clueless. They, they've com completely lost their way. They've given themselves over to idolatry and immorality and apathy. Like you can see their spiritual indifference in the naming of Josiah. His father, who is a pagan king, names him a name that literally means helped by Yahweh. Why would he do that? Because he's spiritually clueless. This is the guy, once again, who was such a wicked person that wicked people killed him. Like that was his father. And so we read in verse 2 that when he, Josiah, was king, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord 
and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. In your Bible, you ought to underline that word, and. And if you know the stories of the kings, you know that that's a very significant word because usually what you would read here is that he did right if he was a righteous king in the eyes of the Lord, but... But he didn't tear down the high places. He didn't tear down the ashram. He didn't stop the worship of Baal in some of the cities. He was righteous, but... Or he was righteous until... Until the priest that was discipling him died. Or until he was greatly helped by the Lord and kind of got puffed up and prideful. But not with Josiah. Like he was a righteous king and... He did not stray to the right or to the left. He stayed in his lane. Like, how is that even possible? I mean, his dad and his granddad were terrible. Like, even to the point of bringing idols and temple prostitutes into the temple of God. Like, all he had ever seen, all he had ever known of worship was idolatry. And yet... Awakening is a sovereign and generational work of God. And God will often use someone as the catalyst. And we see that right here. Verse 3, it says, For in the eighth year of his reign, he's 16 years old, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. He's just a kid. He's just 16 years old. He has no example before him, but something in him begins to stir. Like this is not the way it's supposed to be. I thought we were a light to the nations. I thought we were supposed to be different than the nations around us. I thought they were to come to us, that we were to lend and never borrow. I thought all these promises that I've heard, generational promises would be true in my reign, and yet they're not. And so he begins to seek the God of his father, David. As Greg Laurie has said, God grants revival to those humble enough to know that they need it. Those who have a certain desperate hunger for Him. Remember, God is always previous. As Tozer says, when we begin to seek the Lord, it's because He sought us first. And He moved our heart. And then it says, in the eighth year of His reign, while He was yet a boy, He began to seek the God of His Father, And in the twelfth year, now he's 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. Like he begins to seek the Lord and four years later, he begins to clean house. He takes God very seriously. The character and the fame of God very seriously. In fact, it results, verse 7, it says that he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. This guy's the king, but he's not in Jerusalem. What is he doing? He's going from town to town, city to city, village to village, tearing down the altars in the high places, tearing down all the images of idolatry, grinding them into powder and sprinkling the ashes on the on on their false altars or on their graves like he didn't go back to Jerusalem until he was done 
He wouldn't rest until revival came. I mean, there's two aspects of, of the life of Josiah that we should take careful note of. The first is his zeal for the glory of God. Like that is what's driving him. This city upon a hill, this nation that was supposed to be a light to all the nations, that was supposed to communicate who Yahweh was. He had a zeal for the fame of God and he had unquestioning and meticulous obedience to God's Word. We'll see that in just a moment. Verse 8, it says, Now in the 18th year of his reign, now he's 26 years old, when he had cleansed the land and the house, meaning the temple, so eight years of doing this work of national repentance, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz. I mean, we all know Joah and Joahaz, right? Uh, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord his God. They had already cleansed the temple, taken out all the idols and destroyed them, removed the temple prostitutes that were in God's house. Makes me think, do we have any idols in our house? I mean, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you have any idols in your life? He cleanses the temple and then he goes about the work of repairing and restoring it. Like he's restoring true worship to the people of God, to God's chosen nation. Like the king has moved from simply restraining wickedness. He'd been doing that for the last eight years to now promoting righteousness. And then in verse 14, it says, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Hey, this looks like it might be important. This scroll right here. I think God wrote it. Moses gave it to us. It's just been laying in the corner collecting dust. Like, can you even believe that? Like it's very possible that the, the scroll of the law of God had been missing for 80 years since the reforms of Hezekiah. Like the book of the law is minimum the book of Deuteronomy. And it may include the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Like it was Israel's constitution. How do you lose your only copy of the Word of God? Neglect. They didn't need it. Right? Hezekiah is dead, followed by Amnon, followed by Manasseh. They didn't need the law of God because they weren't following it. They weren't reading it. It did not matter to them. Like I wonder how many of your Sunday mornings begin with, oh no, where's my Bible? Which where you left it last week. If you even brought it. I mean, that's what's going on here. Just a disregard for God's Word. Verse 18, it says, Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Like guys, when Israel is reading this during their time of captivity, right? Like they're given this story while they're captives in Babylon and they're reading it to their children. When they heard those words, it felt like a thousand pounds had dropped on their shoulders. Are you serious? We have found a book. 
He has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. I mean, this is not our culture. But what that means is deep mourning, lament, grief. He feels the weight of what has just been read to him from the book of the law. What's his response to hearing God's law read to him? Hear this, for the very first time in his life. Indifference? Apathy? No. Zeal for God's glory and meticulous obedience to His Word. Like He gives God's Word its immediate and full attention. Josiah took God's Word very seriously. Do you? And if you say you do, what's your evidence that you do? I mean, listen to Josiah's response. He says, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. I mean, imagine, like he's never read this book. And yet, when it's read to him, he hears the promises of God. I mean, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I will give you this land. And if you're faithful to me, and you don't stray to the right or to the left, you will stay in the land and I will bless you. But if you chase after idols, if you chase after the gods that these people I'm driving out before you are chasing after, then I will add to your people the curses of this book and I will carry you away into captivity. The wrath of God will fall. And he hears these words. He hears these promises and these curses. And it cuts him to the quick. I mean, he had been leading a national repentance movement for eight years. Like he knew. He knew in his heart of hearts that they were guilty of great sin before God. However, until the law of the Lord was rediscovered, he had no idea of how bad things were or how angry a holy God would be at the rebellion of his children. Josiah has an awakening. Man, things are far worse than I could have ever imagined. And the Lord's wrath is about to fall on us. How did we get here? We got here like we always do. Compromise. Compromise has a way of blinding us to the truth. We allow things that we would never have allowed and within weeks or months or a generation, it becomes our new normal. Like we often measure our own lives against the lives of those around us that we feel superior to. Hey, I know I'm not as good as that person, but I'm certainly not as bad as them. So I'm okay, right? And that's how we think until we rediscover the Word of God. Like the most dangerous thing you can do as a believer is open up the Bible and read what God says there and let it cut you to the quick. Like this is what happens when true revival comes. Our eyes are opened and we are undone. And we realize that we are far more sinful than we realized. Far more worldly. Far more compromised far more polluted by our sin 
far more disobedient and dishonest and disloyal to Yahweh. And we realize that we are hanging by a thread. Like we don't deserve national revival. We only deserve national judgment. Revival would be a mercy. Judgment is what we rightly deserve. And that's when we can finally, truly, honestly, genuinely cry out in desperation, God, send revival or we die. And so Josiah sends the prophet to inquire of the Lord, Lord, what do you want us to do? What do we do with this situation we find ourselves in? And it says, thus says the Lord, as the Lord responds, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God. When you, when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you declares the Lord. God's just there. Before God tells him anything else, what an amazing promise. In all the world, there is this one man who hears the Word of God read to him and he takes God seriously. And at that moment, God takes notice and says, because you humbled yourself before me, because you humbled yourself before my word, because you tore your clothes and felt the weight of your own sin and the sin of this nation, I have heard you. Since you took me seriously, Josiah, I'm, I'm going to take you seriously. And listen to this promise from God. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants, to which you have to think, uh, what? Good news, Josiah, you're going to die. Like, does that sound like a good deal to you? Like, because you've been faithful, because you humbled yourself, because you tore your clothes, I'm going to let you die at a young age. Like what if you, all you received in this life as a reward for your faithfulness was simply knowing that you had pleased your heavenly Father? Things around you didn't change. The church didn't explode in growth. You didn't get your guy in the White House. What if the only thing you get from your obedience, your faithfulness is knowing that God is pleased with you? Would that be enough? For Josiah, Josiah, I guess, seems to think that it's enough. Like he knows we don't deserve revival. We deserve judgment. And so Josiah responds this way. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. This had taken hours as the king stood there and read the scroll of the law to the people. Like for Josiah, knowing that his end is near, 
He doesn't throw up his hands and give up and say, what's the point? He invites the nation in on what God has shown him. And the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. He had a zeal for God's glory and meticulous obedience to God's word. Like for, for Josiah, it was like almost like he was saw it as a blessing. Like, like we now have the revealed word of God. No more guessing. No more going on my intuition. No more saying, well, my intentions were good. Like I know exactly what God expects of us and we are going to line up our lives with what he has said, beginning with me. And then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it, in this covenant. That's leadership. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God, all his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. What a man of God. You see, Josiah humbled himself. Josiah saw himself as a king, but as a man under authority. He's the king, but not the king of kings. Men, y'all may lead your family, but there is one who leads you. Families, parents, y'all may lead your family, but there's somebody who is the authority over you who really calls the shots. Like Josiah knew who he was. He knew his limitations. He knew that God knew more than he knew. And so he lined up his life completely with God's Word. And whether he has five years or 50 years, I'm going to follow God and I'm not going to stray to the right or to the left, and I'm not going to allow my people to do that either. So what does this mean for you? Well, we're praying for a spiritual awakening, but it starts with people who are awakened. And here's what we see of awakened people. The awakened take God seriously. Do you take God seriously? Hear this. Jesus is a terrible hobby. If Jesus is just your hobby and not your Lord, not the ruler of your life, the one who calls all the shots, the one that you bow to and serve, the one that you call master and allow to call you slave, if Jesus is just your, just your hobby, you are an utter fool. The awakened take God seriously. Like, did your prayer this week show that you're taking God seriously. As you cried out in desperation, God, sin revival or we die. A generation before Josiah, the prophet Isaiah told the nation of Israel during the reign of his grandfather, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And during the reign of Josiah, Jeremiah the prophet records this promise from Yahweh. You will seek me 
and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Josiah did, and he found the Lord. We need to pray for revival until God says yes or stop. The awakened take God seriously. Like I love, there's a story in Numbers 25, you ought to read it today, where there's this priest named Phineas who honors God in a very remarkable way. Like I want you to read it for yourself, Numbers 25. But in Numbers 25, God commends this priest Phineas with these words. He says, He was as zealous for my honor as I am. Oh, that, that would be true of us. Like he was as zealous for my honor as I am. God is the most God-centered being in all of the universe. For Him to place anything above His glory would make Him an idolater. And God is zealous for His own honor and glory. And so was Phineas. Like you see that in the Jesus Revolution. In that movement in the late 60s and early 70s, like God moved in these churches as hippies came in, tired of the drugs and the free sex and everything else, looking for an answer. Like the Jesus revolution in the next generation was simply turned into a formula called the seeker movement. They thought the way to reach the masses was simply to dress more casually and have better music. And yet, if you went to any of those churches that were exploding with growth in the late 60s and early 70s, they got up and they preached the gospel of repentance and told those hippies to take up their cross and follow Christ. And they did. Why do you long for revival? Hopefully your answer at least includes this. Because Jesus truly is worthy of it all. Revival isn't about pursuing an, a, an event or a feeling or growth for your church. It's about pursuing Christ because He is worthy. Jesus, have your church, your love, your bride, the joy for which you freely gave your life, radiant and white, Washed and purified, Jesus have us all. Jesus have your worth, your due, your sum, the praise of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Let all that has been made glorify your name. Jesus have it all. Guys, the awakened take God seriously, and the awakened take sin seriously. Do you take sin seriously? Do you love what God loves and hate what God hates? Like, are you right now at this moment as a Christian holding on to sin, holding on with this grip that won't let go of something that Christ died for? Do you take sin seriously? Puritan Thomas Watson said this, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Oh, that God would make sin bitter to us. The things that we pursue that end in emptiness, 
that rob us of joy and true satisfaction, that wreck our lives and our families, that get a grip on us, a powerful addiction that won't let go, that God may release that grip of those things. Let us repent and follow Him. Historically, during times of revival, sensitivity to sin is intensified. Conviction strikes deep and our calloused hearts are broken. Things that we tolerated become intolerable. And we move from mere regret to true repentance. See, regret is simply, I'm sorry. Like it's an emotion. I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm so sorry for getting caught. I'm so sorry for the consequences. I'm so sorry that I'm embarrassed and other people know. Like I'm so sorry that it's cost me something. But worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, leads to repentance. A turning from sin. Like this is the moment when we can cry out desperately and pray the prayer of Habakkuk 3.2, Lord, I have heard of Your fame. I stand in all of Your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Are you quick to recognize and agree with God about your sin in confession? That's literally what confession means. To say the same thing about something that God does. Do you confess your sin by name? Do you keep short accounts with God? Why do we long for revival? Hopefully one of your answers is this. Because sin is deadly. And because the lost are perishing. Like, if you think Satan is content with you holding on to a sin in a way that nobody would ever find out and it wouldn't destroy your life, like it's just, it's just a look, it's just a touch, it's just a drink, it's just uh, an indulgement, it's just a little dishonesty here or there. If you think that Satan is content with you playing on the fringes of sin, guys, you're a fool. He wants to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to take your marriage. He wants to take your family. He wants to take your life. The awakened take God seriously. They take sin seriously. And finally, they take obedience seriously. Like, Do you take obedience seriously? It says of this king that he didn't stray to the right or to the left. He stayed in his lane his whole life. Maybe part of this Motivation was after he was given the book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, he read these words about the king. Like there was instruction in the book of Deuteronomy for kings when they took office. It tells them, Deuteronomy 17.20, for the king should not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Listen, there's not a separate standard for kings and just common folk. Not a separate standard for priests or pastors and ordinary people. Like we should all be obedient, meticulously obedient to God. See, awakened people know that they come to God on His terms, not their own. 
They need to approach the Word of God with a sense of yieldedness. God, what do you want me to do with what you're saying? And they approach the Word with humility. They're under authority. God, this is Your Word, and I know that You know more than I know. So when You speak, I just want to say, yes, yes, sir, yes, Lord. And I... I want to close with one final thing uh, that I think is very important uh, from the life of Josiah and the revival that God used to bring uh, in his life and in the life of the nation of Israel. Um, Because if I stopped right here, like it's kind of a, it's a sweet story. I mean, Josiah's in heaven, he's rewarded, but it's also a serious bummer, right? Like it's, it's right at the edge. Like we're right at the edge of Israel, and finally there's a king who is more obedient than Solomon, than David, than Hezekiah. He's faithful through and through. He doesn't veer to the right or to the left. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is the one who's going to turn everything right, and God promises him he's going to die as a young man. I mean, that's a bummer. And yet... Three and a half short years after Josiah's death, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and he besieges it. And then he tells his commanders to cart away the best and the brightest of the men from the royal house of Israel and take them to Babylon. Among them are Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And we know the story because we studied it just a few months ago. Daniel chapter 1 tells us that Daniel set in his heart that he would not defile himself. Where do you think he learned that? He learned it from King Josiah. Like he was there in the royal court experiencing this incredible revival. Like God used Josiah to raise up a remnant who would go into captivity and stand firm for the one true God. God stands with those who stand for Him. Where do you think He learned that? He learned it from His King. And so my question is, who today are you blessing with your faithfulness? Will you leave the church in better condition than when you found it? Let's pray. Father, I thank You that as we come to this table, Lord, even in the midst of a heavy message about a king who did everything right, but he could not stop the judgment on his people because the cup of Your wrath was full. We can come to this table and remember that there was a king born from the line of David, a great-grandson of Josiah who did everything right. And by his sacrifice and his young death, he turned back the wrath of God by allowing it to be poured out on him. We thank you for King Jesus. We thank You for this table, for this bread, and this cup, and a reminded Lord Jesus 
that your flesh is true food and your blood is true drink. And so we ask that you would bless the bread and the cup now that it may bring spiritual nourishment to your people as we acknowledge your presence in this moment. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.